Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Greg Roman, director here at the Middle East Forum, join us to discuss the shabby tale of Qatar's ex-CIA hire. Mr. Roman will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Greg Roman. We can't hear you. Thank you very much, Stacy, And thank you all for joining today's webinar. Qatar has had an outsized influence over the world of global sport for the past 12 years, as it has prepared to host next week's 2022 World Cup, arguably the largest event in global sport outside of the Olympics and sometimes even surpassing it. But its journey to obtaining the World Cup has been mired in controversies surrounding human rights, labor issues, the country's practices abroad and at home, and most importantly, for the topic of today's discussion, its efforts to try to defeat the American bid for the 2010 Selection Committee, which voted on having Qatar host the World Cup in 2022, which took place at FIFA, the international body responsible for regulating global soccer, and its subsequent activities for the past 12 years in trying to both undermine subsequent investigations in the Qatar and its alleged host committee misconduct and the actors that were present in trying to disrupt the selection process, including American citizens. So first, I would ask that we all go back to 2010. This was two years into the Obama administration, and one of the first things that he had planned as a seminal moment for U.S. sport was the United States bid, which was competing also against the United Kingdom, a few other countries, and most notably Qatar, who would become the eventual successor to host the 2022 World Cup. Now, in order to be able to get the selection, you have to have a majority of FIFA's executive committee, which consists of 22 voting members. Those 22 members, besides their independent directors, represent continental football associations or soccer associations, and those continental associations are made up of the heads of different countries' soccer programs. Sitting on that committee, there was a lobby for the Qatari bid. There was also a lobby for the American bid. But it wasn't just the selection of the 2022 World Cup that they were voting on. It was also the selection of the 2018 World Cup, which would eventually have been hosted in Russia. <clears throat> and what we now know from the revelation of documents which came out about that bid and two subsequent Department of Justice indictments, there was at least the allegations of impropriety by Americans and other nationals outside of this country to try to influence that process in Qatar's favor. The first allegation came in 2014 when an individual named Michael Garcia, who now sits as a judge on the New York Court of Appeals, issued the Garcia Report. And from that report, FIFA took disciplinary action against several FIFA executive committee members. The second allegations which came down were about five years later when the Department of Justice issued sweeping indictments against Sepp Blatter, the then Secretary General of FIFA, and other members of the executive committee who had voted on the 2010 process in Qatar's favor. While no Qatari national was indicted, 
they were mentioned as unindicted co-conspirators. And the second, excuse me, the third, and probably the most recent allegations, which took place from DOJ, were in 2020, when another round of indictments came forward after a man named Charles Blazer, who has since passed, an American citizen who was representing one of those regional football federations, admitted as part of a plea agreement to his involvement in both receiving and facilitating bribes and other corrupt actions on behalf of Qatar's Committee for Supreme Legacy and Delivery. This is the name of the Qatari government agency charged with the implementation and also the execution of Qatar's 2022 World Cup. Three individuals sit on that committee. Its head, Mohammed bin Hamad, is a direct relative of Qatar Sheikh Tamim, the ruler of the country. You also have two other individuals, tangentially related to Mohammed bin Hamad, brothers named Hassan al-Fawadi and Ali al-Fawadi. These three individuals will become much later, will become much more important later on in our presentation. Now, in 2010, these three people were responsible with crafting their strategy to get the 2022 World Cup. But the way in which they went about it was by having a sort of uh, tour of goodwill, where Qatari largesse and much of the money that they make as being one of the gr world's great natural gas producing powers would start putting money behind their bid. Now, this was part of a larger effort that Qatar had adopted in 2007 called Qatar Vision 2030. It sort of was the uh, pre-Gulf strategy before Saudi Arabia adopted their own Saudi Vision 2030 of bringing Qatar to be the world of two important places or the centers of two important things around the world. Number one, tourism, which they have been able to successfully do by converting Qatar Airlines into one of the major hubs and major transportation companies regionally in Asia. And second, creating Doha, the capital of Qatar, as a center for global sport. They haven't just been able to host or been able to, to win the hosting rights to global competitions like football. They've also gone to the areas like handball, track and field. On the football level, they're hosting the Asia Cup next year. And as part of this, they have created a massive amount of infrastructure spending, somewhere around $200 billion that has been invested in this project since they won the rights to FIFA 2022 in 2010. But to be able to facilitate this, to be able to convince the global sporting bodies, and especially in this case, since we're talking about the World Cup taking place a week from now, they needed an army of henchmen, lobbyists, foreign agents, spies, and national security-oriented individuals, some of whom worked for the United States government in capacities like the CIA, the NSA, and other national security bodies to push their bid over the finish line. At least that was the thoughts of these three henchmen that the Qataris put in charge of acquiring the 2022 World Cup. So in 2009, it's been reported that a series of bribes went out to FIFA executive committee members on behalf of the Qatari government to try to secure their support for the World Cup. It's also been reported that a second round of bribes went out in 2010 to try and convince those who did vote for the Qatar World Cup to keep their mouths shut. But this was all part of a much larger influence campaign. Now, according to an Associated Press article that came out only a week or two ago, a man named Kevin Chalker and his firm, Global Risk Associates, 
allegedly were involved in help planning a $375 million campaign on behalf of Cutter's football organizing committee for the 2022 World Cup to both convince individuals and use other means, some of which the FBI has allegedly investigated, which goes into the realm of spying on American citizens, of hacking American citizens, and other allegations which have been made both in the press and in court complaints to try to co-opt the American bid to sideline it by being able to find out what they were doing one step ahead of every single transaction which had taken place by the U.S. in its attempt to acquire the World Cup in 2022. And in doing so, get advanced intelligence so the Qataris would have the upper hand in the 2010 bidding process. Now, what's worrying about this is, is that this is not an isolated incident or isolated allegation against an individual or an American firm acting on behalf of the Qataris in order to influence U.S. policy, U.S. commercial bids in the world of sport, or even U.S. international relations as it relates to its positions dealing with interests of in, issues of interest to Qatar in its foreign policy, and also even in its domestic policy. The same individuals who were responsible for allegedly hiring Kevin Chalker, the former CIA operative who planned a dirty tricks campaign against other bids which were trying to get the 2022 World Cup, are the same individuals who were given the responsibility by the ruler of Qatar, the Emir of Qatar, Sheikh Tamim, to help that country get out of a regional configuration that it was involved in in 2017, when five Arab nations, Gulf Arab nations led by Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf Cooperation Council, decided to boycott Qatar, cutting off all airspace, cutting off all land bridges, and launching a general list of demands on the country to reform in many of the areas that those countries considered Qatar to be acting with malign behavior. Excuse me. Immediately in 2017, when that blockade was announced, the same three people that the Emir had asked to help acquire the 2022 World Cup through any means necessary, gave, him, gave them the order to be able to take whatever measures possible to help convince Arab states, or in the very least, Qatar's allies in the United States and in Europe to convince those Arab states to lift the blockade. Qatar's strategy started threefold. First, they would approach the White House. <clears throat> Second, they would approach Congress. And third, they would approach influential constituencies in the United States that they thought had a disproportionate amount of influence over those two aforementioned bodies, the White House and Congress. So, Mohammed bin Hamad ordered Ali al-Thawadi and Hassan al-Thawadi to go to the United States and find lobbyists that would be willing to help undercut the Arab states' efforts to boycott Qatar. Those two individuals, the Thawadi brothers, hired three people in the U.S. to act as their lobbyists, specifically with the intent of influencing the American Jewish community. Those three individuals, Nick Muzin, Joseph Alham, and Greg Howard, eventually became part of an effort to spread Qatari monies around American pro-Israel organizations and American Jewish organizations, number one. Number two, they also became the interlocutors for the Qataris to bring leaders of the American Jewish community to Doha in an effort to try to convince them that Qatar, 
albeit sponsorship of Hamas, its relationships with Hezbollah, its close relations with the Iranian regime in Tehran, its underwriting of terrorism across the Middle East, its malign activities in Europe and the United States, its human rights violations, which have led to the deaths of over 6,500 workers in trying to build those very same World Cup infrastructure stadiums that we're talking about beforehand, was nonetheless okay because the American Jewish community should in somehow, or at least its leadership in somehow, would be convinced that the emir and his goons in Doha were somehow friendly to American Jewish interests. The third thing that these lobbyists were charged with was going to the U.S. Congress and selling a story about how Qatar was vital to American national security interests. And fourth, allegations have arised that these three individuals were also responsible for trying to undermine Americans who were against Qatar. Now, those four actions led to a pro-Qatar full press amongst individuals talking to Congress in the White House. Whereas President Trump was seen as condemning Qatar as a state sponsor of terror early in his administration, eventually, at the end of his administration, Qatar was being seen as a country that the U.S. could do business with. And it even got so bad for the Qataris back during that time that their fortunes completely reversed in a 180-degree spiral when President Biden came into office within the first year of his administration Qatar has now been elevated to the level of a major non-NATO ally. Now, the policy perspective on this. There, is, there are many reports, even one out to the New York Times, that our president, Daniel Pipe, shared with me this morning, that point to foreign powers trying to influence American foreign policy by using American agents who are unregistered by those countries to try to influence our policymakers to make decisions which are for their benefit and in my analysis, very much to our country's detriment. Whether it's the Iranians trying to plan kidnapping operations in New York City, whether it's the Russians trying to influence our policy by signing up their spies to join the NRA or other American domestic lobby groups. At least with those two countries, we recognize, or at least a majority of Americans recognize, that the Russians and the Iranians are pretty much anathema in their policy interests to what we consider to be vital American national security interests. However, a country like Qatar has been able to silently influence our foreign policy decision-making, our sports bids for international competitions, and trying to get into segmented communities of America's wide ethno and sectarian diverse interests in order to promulgate their corrupt policies. The less that the Qataris are able to influence over the United States, the better off American policymakers and Americans are if we're able to call them out for their actions, even if they took place 12 years ago or five years ago. But the fact that Qatar's Amir, Sheikh Tamim, relied on the same three individuals that he used to cajole and bribe his way to obtain the World Cup, to then, seven years later, try to influence the American Jewish community to all of a sudden become pro-Qatar, using American lobbyists that they themselves defined, at least some of them, as members of the American Jewish community, is just a show of this, a sign of a show of confidence that the Amir has placed not just in his henchmen, but in his ability to hire Americans to affect our policy interests here at home. Two things that I think the U.S. government needs to do. 
Number one, if Kevin Chalker, the aforementioned CIA operative hired by the Qataris to influence the World Cup bid, is found to have violated, or at least there's a prima facie reason to have found that he violated American law in his efforts working for the Qataris, he should be indicted. But even more than that, I believe that the Qatari agents who ran him should also face American indictments. And number two, if any illegal behavior was found on behalf of any other Qatari agents, they need to be called out, and the government of Qatar needs to pay a price for their pernicious activities in the United States. If they don't, imagine their third operation that they'll be planning to try to influence our opinion of what we think of that country or that country's interests without us knowing the true source or root of where that influence making is coming from. Stacy, I stand open for questions. All right, thank you so much. Again, for our audience, if you have a question, please type it into our Q&A box. The first one is from uh, Walid Adas. What would Qatar gain from hosting the World Cup and spending 200 billion US dollars? Is is there some sort of uh, legitimacy from it? Is that what you're... Well, Qatar has always sought the punch above its weight. There was a joke made by the uh, former Secretary of State at the end of the Cold War, where he was asked, now that the Soviet Union has been pushed out of the way, what are the two most powerful countries on earth? And his response was the United States and Qatar. The reason being because even since the early 90s, Qatar has a history of trying to influence global policy and global opinion way beyond its size of a nation state of 2.5 million people, of which only about 300,000 are actually Qatari citizens or Qatari nationals. It began in the Gulf War when they were trying to be the first to invade Iraq as part of the coalition. Uh, then it began with the launch of Al Jazeera, its Arab language satellite news channel which sought to influence our opinion across the Middle East. Then after 9-11, it quickly became a place where American forces were stationed at Al-Udayn Air Force Base, trying to show that it was against Al-Qaeda, even though it had been hosting the terror organization for years prior. And in subsequent years, it was always trying to do things where it became the middleman of international politics. The Russia-Ukraine uh, war right now is a great example of where it tries to find itself as the middleman. On one hand, the Qataris have been asked by Europe and the United States to offset the flow of natural gas by the Russians into Europe prior to the 2022-2023 winter. Now, what is often not mentioned is Qatar's interest on the Russian side as well, where they are a major holder of Russian energy companies, they are a major investor in Russian banks, and they are a major investor in Russian infrastructure projects. So on one hand, their rise in gas share goes up by exporting more to Europe. On the other hand, their business interests in Russia may go down, but they come out neutral or with a profit. Now, the question is, why would they spend $200 billion to be able to have this competition in, 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 in the Middle East? It's, I think, two parts. One, economic interest to help that continuous role of 30 years of trying to gain outsized influence beyond the country's size and global politics. But two, it's also because of ego. Qatar is in a perennial battle for being the top Arab country in the Middle East, whether it's picking fights with Saudi Arabia, underwriting uh, civil wars in Egypt, sponsoring Islamist militant groups in Libya, trying to uh, underwrite the Turkish defense, defense industry, trying to put forward the Iranian uh, uh, um, anti-boycott efforts because of their nuclear program. Every single chance that has an opportunity to interfere in Middle East politics, it takes a chance. Sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. But at the end of the day, 
they end up succeeding. They become so much more powerful, and with it, the sheikh's and his family's ego goes up so much more because of their interventionism. So the cost being $200 billion to bring the largest global spectacle of sport to their backyard goes a long way in trying to distract others from their sponsorship of terrorism, their violation of labor rights, and their general misconduct globally. Thank you. And how can we bring the focus back to the misconduct that you're speaking of? I think that a country or an individual or rich empires like the Qataris should not be able to continue with their abject malicious behavior, even if they are giving tens of billions of dollars to what they consider to be good causes. At the Middle East Forum, we haven't just looked at the actions of Qatar as a nation state actor, but we've also looked at their underwriting of non-state activities. Sam Westrop, the director of our Islamist Watch program, and very much involved with our focus on Western Islamism uh, periodical that we now have at Islamism.news, has highlighted this. He has shown, and, and his staff has shown, the underwriting of Qatar's state foundations and American educational systems. They've shown the billions of dollars that the Qataris have spent through the Aid Foundation, which has gone to underwrite activities of Islamist organizations globally, not just in the Middle East, from as far-reaching places as Djibouti to Japan to India, uh, across Africa, and even in some cases in South America and North America, especially with a focus through their Qatar Foundation international activities in the United States and in Europe. So if you're, if you're aware of some of the lawsuits which have come out of Qatar's, or at least trying to punish Qatar for its pernicious behavior against Americans, I'd ask you to look at two. One would be a lawsuit against Qatar's National Bank and its National Endowment for the sponsorship and, and uh, facilitation of money laundering, alleged sponsorship and alleged facilitation of money laundering to the ISIS cell, which was responsible for the murders of American journalists, um, Steve Sotloff and um, Foley. The issue being that a Qatari bank helped give money to ISIS cells, which were responsible for their executions. James Foley, pardon me about that. The second lawsuit that I would encourage you to look at are on behalf of a group of terror victims and their families, including Stuart Force, the father of Taylor Force, an American killed by a Palestinian Islamist attack in Tel Aviv, in, in, in uh, Israel proper a few years ago, where those families are also suing Qatar and its banks for allegedly financing Hamas, the organization which was responsible for, not just responsible, but they, they, cl took, they claimed responsibility for many of the attacks, which led to the deaths, maiming, and injuring of Americans in Israel and other areas in the Middle East. So one way to bring them to account is through uh, litigation. The second is, is, is that American policymakers need to be much more aware of who they are dealing with when someone is trying to cast a pro-Qatari argument on Capitol Hill. There are senators that take a, a disproportionately abject, completely uh, a reversed view of Qatar versus other nation state sponsors of terrorism. I specifically would focus on Lindsey Graham being one of them. He 
himself represents a state which has attracted over a billion dollars in Qatari investments into different industries in South Carolina, but more specifically, one company that is located in Charleston should be of note. And, and his office has gone so far as to support their growth in Charleston, and individuals who used to work for him are lobbying on behalf of this company. The company's name is Barzan Aeronautical. Barzan Aeronautical is a unmanned aerial vehicle development company. In other words, drones. This company has built its own airfield in Charleston, has its own testing facility there, attracting some of the finest American engineers, the aerospace technicians, to their development site, which has been in there for about three or four years. Barzon Aeronautical, a drone-making company, is owned by a larger company in Delaware called Barzon LLC. Barzon LLC is a subsidiary of a German company called Barzon GmbH. Barzon GmbH is wholly owned by the Qatari Ministry of Defense. If you follow the corporate chain there, you'll notice that the Qatari Ministry of Defense has their own drone research and development facility in the middle of Charleston, South Carolina. But beyond that, they have spent millions of dollars trying to lobby the U.S. Congress for preferable trade status, and I can only imagine the amount of FARA filings that they've had to fill out because they're representing another country's Ministry of Defense procurement efforts trying to get American technology to underwrite their own domestic production of drones and other military armaments. So, one, focus on holding them accountable in U.S. courts. Two, hold their lobbyists accountable. Three, follow the money that they're using trying to acquire American intellectual property. And four, at the executive branch level, I think other alternatives have to be found of relocating American national security apparatuses and infrastructure out of Qatar and other places in the Gulf where we have much more reliable allies and the erstwhile ones like Qatar itself. Thank you so much. And that leads me into Taffy Gold's question. Do the pro-Qatar arguments always center around our base there? So Qatar hasn't just been a um, location where the headquarters for U.S. Central's U.S. Central Command's air operations are, the largest American air base in the Middle East, maybe outside of Intralift in Turkey. But it has also been on where some American policymakers have called Qatar a responsible, a responsible interlocutor for America's interests in countries where we have no diplomatic presence. The first being Afghanistan. If you're in Afghanistan right now, as an American citizen, let's say you're in Kabul or Kandahar or Bagram, and you lose your passport, you have to go to the Qatari embassy in Kabul to get a new American passport. The country of Qatar now represents American interests in Afghanistan in a post-America revamped Taliban-led government in that country. The whole reason why the Qataris are in Afghanistan in the first place, in this position of power, is because after a prisoner exchange was negotiated with the Taliban to return Bo Bergdahl, an American soldier who allegedly went AWOL in Afghanistan and was held by the Taliban for years, was in exchange for five Taliban prisoners who were being held in Guantanamo Bay. Those leaders of the Taliban, one of them eventually would become the head of the Taliban now in Afghanistan, sat in Doha and Qatar for years 
living up the Qatari largest after they got out of the Guantanamo Bay prison because the Qataris played host to them. After this took place, those same members, many of whom were being held by the U.S. in our facility there outside of Cuba, were then the negotiators that sat down indirectly with members of the American State Department and our diplomatic team in Doha to try and negotiate the withdrawal of American forces from Afghanistan. So on one hand, the U.S. outsourced its diplomatic bargaining efforts to the Qataris and allowed them to play host to the Taliban, while only a few miles down the road, our largest airbase was located there. And on the other hand, after the negotiations led to the Doha Accords in 2020, which was negotiated by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and then implemented by the Biden administration in a disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan in August of 2021, the Qataris were there every step of the way. So some American policymakers consider them to be beneficial to our military interests and also beneficial to our diplomatic interests. But I repeat to what I said beforehand, a country that sponsors terrorism, that underwrites terror organizations, that is friendly to many, many despotic regimes that we consider to be anathema to American foreign policy interests, are more of a threat to American national security than they are a benefit. There are other countries which could much more easily and much more effectively handle our partnership on Middle East problems and our needs to address international concerns rather than a small desert peninsula wasteland which has used its natural gas wealth to build itself up into what they consider to be an influential nation. But I think that it's the job of the United States and also any elected officials, not just to realize the dangers that Doha poses, but to cut it off at the knees and to stop allowing it to have such a disproportionate amount of influence in American foreign policy decision-making and to hold them into account for trying to influence our decision-making here at home. Thank you so much. Clearly, this has been uh, well-researched. Uh, should we be expecting anything further on this subject? You will see in the days ahead, prior to the World Cup, uh, what I believe is some explosive news as it relates to Qatar's influence activities. But uh, beyond that, I would just encourage people to start typing Google, I uh, start Qatar into Google and see the list of all the nefarious activities which are being exposed, both by the Associated Press and other news outlets. All right, well, thank you so much. Uh, we've come so close to our webinar. Thank you, Greg, for joining us today. And for thank our you. viewers, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.